The Inventive Podcast, mixing engineering fact and fiction. Inventive. 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 With Trevor Cox, Professor of Acoustic Engineering at the University of Salford. Welcome to Inventive. My guest today is a polymath. Larissa Suzuki describes herself as a passionate computer scientist, author, engineer, entrepreneur, philanthropist and inventor. She also could have been a concert pianist. My chat with Larissa mostly focused on two areas of engineering that are growing in importance to our everyday life. That is artificial intelligence and smart cities. The idea behind smart cities is not for us to have uber high tech around us. The idea for a smart city is that we provide to the citizens everything they need at the time they need and where they need it. And that's what intrigued today's author Tim Morn. His story wittily explores the ethics of big data and machine learning and those who seek to exploit it. We've all watched millions of pounds and endless years go down the drain as committees and hearings and pilot studies achieve nothing. We've got rid of all that. You've got rid of democracy. We'll return to ethics later, but first to the start of the interview. Now, how do I introduce someone with so many engineering irons in the fire? Maybe I'll just let her do that. I'm Dr. Larissa Suzuki. I work at Google as the data practice lead for the UK and Ireland, and that includes data analytics, AI, and data management. And I'm also an honorary associate professor at University College London. Larissa has also recently added several accolades to her CV, including the Royal Academy of Engineering Rook Award, a place on the top 50 women in engineering list, and a promotion to the head of data and AI practice at Google. I started by asking her about her favourite project she's currently working on. Inventive. 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 My favourite project is working on the interplanetary internet, connecting uh, devices and satellites to ensure that we have connectivity to provide services to the International Space Station, to remote planets and to remote satellites. It's quite difficult to communicate from Earth to any spacecraft, uh, largely due to the extreme distances involved. And these environments are typically subject to frequent disruptions because of this, and links are limited to one direction and possibly long delays and high error rates. So the ability to create a technology that can work on this uh, space is something that I find quite fascinating. So I work with the Delay Disruption Tolerant Network, which is a computing network model and a system of rules for transmitting information. And we're seeing an increase now, aren't we, in, in people getting into space, going back to the moon and then potentially maybe even going further. Is it is it preparation for that or is it dealing with the current satellite and probing systems that we have? The idea is for us to ensure that we can provide applications to spacecrafts going anywhere in space. We can, for instance, get medical details from astronauts and process them on Earth like in, in nearly real time and make sure that we can do artificial intelligence to detect something based on information we receive and send that back into space to people working there. So there's tons of opportunities for us for space discovery and also for the advancement of, of science. I mean, it's amazing how broad you, the areas you've tackled. I mean, there's things in agriculture. You're talking here about planetary exploration. You've done stuff in radiography and trying to reduce doses of radiography. As an engineer, you seem to go across such a wide, diverse set of areas. Yes, I believe that as engineers, we are doctors for the world. 
And I think that we can do everything we can in any area. And one of the things that I find fascinating, especially in the field of computer science, is that we are not attached or limited by any field of science. So I can work on agriculture, on cancer diagnosis, and I work with AI and smart analytics, delivering solutions for Google customers. And I work with the interplanetary internet. I work with ethics and AI. And I'm also supervising a student, PhD student, working on detection of lung cancer. So I think that there's a lot of transferability of skills from one area to another. And that is why I find engineering a very exciting career because you can be curious, you can be inventive at all times. Yes, you talk about wanting to demystify engineering. I mean, if there, is that your takeaway message about engineering? It's about diversity or what other message would you give? I think it's about being able to work where your passion is and make contributions to any field of science and also to ensure that diverse perspectives are brought in because people think engineering, especially computer science, is a very isolated career that is only you and your computer, but that couldn't be far from the truth. In fact, you need a very collaborative team. So it's very multidisciplinary and very exciting. So I believe engineering is something that is amazing for any type of person to, to pursue. So I strongly recommend people to look into engineering to fulfill their dreams. If you cannot be a doctor like me because I cannot see blood, you can still help to cure cancer and advance science in medicine through the use of engineering. And there's also this sort of stereotype of, of an engineer being a white, middle-aged bloke, actually rather like me. I, I, uh, <laughs> I was going to say, I'm afraid. I'm not afraid. That's what, who I am. I mean, do we need a greater diversity in our engineers as well, as well as those big cross-cutting teams? Yeah, I think it's no longer a morality agenda. I think it's more a prosperity agenda. Because in the past, women, they dominated the area of computer science. When it became profitable, they were discouraged to pursue that profession. Women and men, they have worked alongside all the time, but women that have been erased from history. So we have Bluetooth and Wi-Fi today, thanks to a woman. We have AI and programming, also thanks to the work of Ada Lovelace and the first person to create a compiler that would allow us to use our natural language to program a computer was also a female. So we can talk to a computer using English language because of the work of a female pioneer. The problem is that those women, they were erased from history and you cannot be what you cannot see. Those are very wise words for Mary Wilson. So I truly believe that we need diversity to restate what engineering was before with people from different backgrounds, different opinions to help us to perfect the technology and make the technology to mirror the society we are building them for. So that's why it's quite important for us to bring people from multiple perspectives into engineering. What do we gain? I mean, maybe it's taking the obvious. What do we gain by having a more diverse engineering team to draw on? I think we can create better products that will fit and suit better the people and the society we are building them for. We are going to get things right much earlier. And also because with AI and machine learning, it's quite important that we bring different perspectives and people to work on this area. So that would be self-regulating. So I truly believe that we have more to gain by having a diverse team, people who think from different perspectives and different angles. So you can have a team scrutinizing and making the product much better 
for the user. So I think we have much more to gain than to lose. Now, I come from an area of acoustics and, and in speech technology, we've seen in the past problems such as gender bias in speech recognition. And we still have issues around racial bias, essentially, where it works better for some groups than, than for others. I mean, how does that come about? How does a machine end up creating say, a speech recognition system that, that is sexist? What happens in reality is that machines learn based on the data that you see. So, for instance, if you go on Google.com and you type in physicist and you click on images, you're going to see tons of images there for male physicists. When you click on the male picture, that sends a signal to Google that that picture was right. So these results become self-perpetuating. So no one is trying to bias towards male pictures, but a reinforcing feedback loop is now in place. So I believe that the diversity problem is not just about gender or race. It's most fundamentally about power, specifically about pervasive power imbalances that reinforces itself in society. It will affect which companies or projects get funding, the problems they choose to solve, what products will get built, who they are designed to serve and who benefits from their development. So we have to have people being self-regulators of the projects that they work on to ensure that we don't have that unfair result going back to the end user. I, mean, I think that's in- incredibly important, incredibly laudable. But uh, I mean, it, we've just recently celebrated 100 years of women having the vote in, in, the, in Britain, and still we don't have parity of male and female members of parliament, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and still there's quite a lot of gender bias. So I wonder, do we need more proactive work to make machine learning and artificial intelligence less biased? Can we wait for the institutions to catch up? I mean, it it could take decades, if not centuries, at the rate we're going. I think in the technical sides, we are working quite hard trying to identify technologies and solutions to solve this. However, it's also up to the people as well. I think we need people to be change makers and to voice very hard for us to have more equality and parity in the parliament and into other places, into boards, especially. We have a lot of bias in their organizations that we receive funding from venture capitalist organizations. So we also have to make sure that everything becomes more fair and then we caught up on those biases and we voice for them. I was uh, I was really fascinated to see on uh, the cartoon on your website, which was called How I Was Assembled, which lists ingredients like curiosity, love of anime, and alongside some things like bad singing and social awkwardness, I noticed. I mean, how does that influence your engineering? Yeah, uh, one of the things is that I am neurodiverse, so I am autistic. So I struggle a lot with sensory issues and picking up on social cues. And I also struggle with social interactions. But despite the social difficulties I experienced, I found out that I am not someone with a defect, but someone with particular interesting abilities. Because on one side, I can have some social issues in terms of interacting or picking up social cues and reading people's intentions. But on the other hand, I have a very deep interest for engineering and I can have a very deep dive into topics and I'm very curious about this. So I think that despite the social difficulties experienced by many neurodiverse people, we often display complex collaborative and support behaviors. Because our brains are wired differently from neurotypical people, we bring new perspectives to a company's effort to create and recognize value. 
So one in 45 people in the general population is somewhere on the autistic spectrum. So when you think about it, when you meet someone with autism, you have not met every single person on the autism spectrum because it's already a spectrum. But I believe we can bring a new perspective. Again, it goes back to diversity. We are like puzzle pieces and it's up to companies and managers to make us to fit as puzzle pieces to create something amazing and fantastic and astonishing for society. But traditionally, companies, they have wanted us to trim down our irregularities and become perfect rectangles. And that really takes the best of us. And that is one of the things that we have to avoid. We have to see that people are individuals, that when they come together, they can accomplish astonishing things. So we shouldn't encourage people to fit a particular profile because that is not the answer to creating better products and being more successful. And, and when you, you've talked about making machines act a bit more like a human, I mean, are you talking about trying to develop that sort of kind of a bit more understanding in the machines about how humans interact? It, it can be something that's quite helpful. So machines can be tailored to help us in many different areas. So for instance, facial recognition, a recent study has demonstrated that we have a lot in common in different cultures about the way that we express our facial expressions. So we could train a machine learning to detect the faces and what that emotion means. That can be quite useful for someone with autism that struggles with identifying what a facial expression might mean because we might have machines helping them to understand this. And we can have machines to help the visually impaired. We can have machines helping people who are disabled and marginalized by society. So I do believe that artificial intelligence, machine learning, and computer science can help us to give back the right to the city, to people who have that human right neglected over the years. When we're thinking, therefore, of developing cities and we think about, uh, I don't know, developments like self-driving cars, which is endlessly in the news at the moment, do you think we shouldn't be just thinking of these as ways to allow me to watch Netflix while I go into work and we should be thinking of the broader population who can benefit from this technology? Indeed, and that is a point that I, I, I like to make every single time I get to talk about smart cities because the point of self-driving cars is not for you to be lazy and be sleeping or watching Netflix while the car takes you to work. If you think that we have over 60 million people on wheelchairs and over 280 million people who are visually impaired, those are the people who would benefit from those advancements in technology because they could have the right to the city. They could go to employment. They could go to school to get education because it's not everyone that has the ability to pay for a personal driver. So I do think that we have to expand our minds and really think about the rest of society so that when we design cities, we don't make cities to fit just a small proportion and to be a commodity exploited by just a small proportion. But we have to make a city that will mirror the society the city has to be built for. You mentioned the term smart cities. I guess to many listeners, that might not be something that they're familiar with. I mean, what what is a smart city and why is it a good idea? The idea behind smart cities is not for us to have drones flying around. It's not for us to have the uber high tech around us. The idea of a smart city is that we provide to the citizens everything they need at the time they need and where they need it. 
So the idea is that we would have more beds in hospital. We would be able to contain pandemic by looking at the data. We would provide better education by collecting data and processing information in real time and ensuring people have access to better transportation systems and a fair cost for transport, for housing, for energy, for water. It's to ensure that we have clean water when a house is built. We have electricity and internet connection available. So smart cities is all about this, creating a city that will mirror the society we are building them for. So if we have a lot of people who are senior citizens, we have to cater the city for those individuals and ensure that the technology is understandable by them that we also cater services to those people. So that's why the one-size-fits-all approach will never work because we also have to think about the culture of a city. So we cannot assume that the same technology developed in a city will work in another one. That's why we have to take into account the society we are building them for, the digital readiness, the culture, their expectations of citizens. Then we can achieve what we call a smart city, which is a city that will provide the services to the citizens at the time they need, where they need and when they need it. I mean, what you described there, a set of things like hospitals that have beds, schools where you want them. I mean, isn't that what politicians should be doing at this moment? So what is a smart city that gives an advantage over what we're currently doing? Is that we can instrument the city and collect data in real time and then have that result processed by machine instead of us humans processing that by hand. So, for instance, during COVID, we had cities in the European Union that had beds and others who didn't, but because they don't share the data, they couldn't understand where to send people to get help. So if you have data and that data is processed by machine in real time, you can predict the likelihood of having beds available in hospital X at time Y, and then you can better plan for your citizens on like where to best provide the hospital services to them. So the idea is for us to be more real time and act promptly when something happens. So it's what we call predictive maintenance and predictive action on the results that we see from data, from data processing and from artificial intelligence uh, outputs. When you go about and talk about this, do you, get, do you ever get kickback by people saying, well, I don't want my data to be collected. Why should people know where I'm going around the city and, and privacy issues? We do understand this is like a very big concern and I am a very big fan of the ethics on the data, ethics on the way that we use and work with people's data. So I am an academic, I am and I am an honorary associate professor at UCL. And in my research, I look at this, I look at how do we ensure that the data collected from citizens, they are privacy protected and people, they have the right to their data. And this is what many governments, they are doing at the moment. So we have the GDPR, we have many other actions coming to place. So what we have to do is to educate people on where their data is going, who is going to have access and for what purpose. So if people see that the social purpose for the benefit of mankind is very great, they are going to be inclined to let their data be used. 
but not commercially exploited, which I, I wouldn't want my data to be as well. So I think that it's all about like education and also being transparent on where the data is going to and how the data is being exploited. Yeah, I mean, what strikes me and, and is that there's many things that we can't seem to opt out of. So in theory, I could opt out of giving lots of data to Google, but it seems quite hard to achieve that and participate in modern society. Do you think we need to go further in allowing that data to be ring fenced so I really own it rather than I give it away to, to someone to exploit? As an academic uh, uh, from UCL, I truly believe that we are going to have more regulations for what people can do to own their own data and open it up just to the people that they want to, to have access to their data. So some uh, platforms will be able to collect data based on some of the services that they offer. But I, I believe that stronger regulations are coming to place, especially in the European Union. And I think that is going to be beneficial to users um, if that gives them the empowerment to control their data and to open up their data when they feel they would like to take part in just something. Inventive. We'll come back to Larissa Suzuki soon, but as always in Inventive, we've invited an author to be inspired by the engineer's story. Today it's Tim Morn, whose interests include neurodiversity, fairness and smart cities. Now, Tim's a science fiction author whose first novel, Infinite Detail, was named the Guardian Science Fiction and Fantasy Book of the Year in 2019. And it's the issues of artificial intelligence, machine learning and big data that Tim's focused on in this story. My City is Not a Problem by Tim Morn. Vanessa hated doing Newsnight. This was the third time, and it was no less terrifying. The video package was hurtling towards its conclusion, but she was largely oblivious to it. It looked like basically the same one they'd run the last two times she'd been on. The same critics and naysayers, AI ethicists and privacy advocates, the same infographics of budget runovers and delays. It all flowed over her as she instead just focused on the clock on the monitor, digits dissolving into nothing as it counted down, the panic bubbling up with each passing millisecond. She was so paralysed by both that she almost didn't realise they were back. I'm joined now in the studio by the Plara Project's lead engineer, Vanessa Allen. So, you're going to flick a switch on Thursday and suddenly all of London's problems are going to be solved, is that right? Well, technically speaking, the switches have already been flicked. Last year, in fact, Clara spent the last nine months really plugged into all the data we can gather about London at every level. London is, you know, a very complex collection of many thousands of interlocking systems, which as a whole is beyond the comprehension of normal human intelligence. So you're saying your software knows what London needs better than its mere residents? Not at all. I think as residents of London, we all know what the city's biggest problems are and we can agree on them. What's harder for us to see is the underlying systems and structures that link all those problems that make them seem insurmountable. 
Plus, Clara has been watching Londoners' behaviour for patterns. She knew, even as the words were falling out of her mouth, that she'd messed up. She suddenly pictured Robert and Sarah watching at home, palms going to their faces. Watching! So you're now, as the project finally comes to fruition and after years of denying it, admitting that you've built a large-scale surveillance tool. Not at all, Emily. I understand it's easy for the press to frame our work that way. How do you respond to those critics that say you've just built another Facebook? I mean, with all due respect to people's concerns, that's ridiculous. (laughs) She heard her voice tremble, fought back a dryness at the back of her throat. This, this was the one trap she was meant to avoid and she dropped right into it. Facebook is a private corporation and they use their AI systems largely to leverage data for advertising. We're very different. We're publicly owned and got most of our money from the public sector. We're a non-profit and we are using data to identify... You bring up funding. Let's talk about that for a second. So far, this project has cost in excess of £2 billion of public money. There's a lot of people who think that money could have served London in far more immediate ways. Overhauling the tube or rail links, housing, schools, the list is as long as it is obvious. Haven't you just wasted all this problem-solving money on another useless white elephant? Vanessa took a breath, but not long enough to create dead air. Fought the urge to take a sip of water, in case that just meant another salvo being lobbed in past her defences. Look... I think on Thursday, a lot of people are going to be pleasantly surprised. I understand the comparisons with Facebook and Google. Outside of the military, there's only six active AI systems of this scale in known use, and ours is the only one in the public sector. It's the only one owned and built by a city for a city and its residents, and that's important. Like you said yourself, most Londoners will agree on what the city's biggest concerns are, The problem, historically, has been getting politicians to agree with them, let alone getting a plan of action drawn up. I mean, we've all watched millions of pounds and endless years go down the drain as endless committees and hearings and pilot studies achieve nothing, or just to be shown by the end a list of vague recommendations or a report that is never acted on. We've got rid of all that. You've got rid of democracy. We've got rid of all that because it's not efficient. Instead, we've replaced it with a system that can look at the data and facts around events as they happen and can respond instantly with actual action plans, all based on knowing exactly what the people of London want and need. It's democracy in real time. I really believe that very strongly. And I think that I'm afraid that's all we've got time for. Thank you, Vanessa Allen, for joining us tonight. I watched you on Newsnight, Clara said. Oh no, it was terrible, Vanessa replied. I was terrible. I thought you did really well under the circumstances. The interviewer did not seem very interested in allowing you to fully answer the questions. This format does not appear to be a very efficient way of either analysing a situation or reaching a consensus. No, I guess it's not. Perhaps it's one of the things we can change after Go Live. Vanessa laughed. She'd originally logged into the test site just to check everything was okay, like she'd been doing three or four times an hour for the last two weeks. But once again, she'd found herself checking out the chat client. 
chin-wagging with Clara. The illusion of sentience and personality still impressed her, but it was little more than that, a magic trick meant to look like human intelligence, her syntax and language built from machine learning analysis of millions of words of Vanessa and her team's emails and text messages. It felt vastly more real than Siri or Alexa, although, in theory, it really wasn't any more sophisticated. But the team in charge of putting it together had done incredible work. And from Thursday, Clara was going to be all over the city, talking to hundreds of thousands of Londoners, on screens, on buses and trains, at kiosks in tube stations and shopping centres, and directly from this website to their phones, computers and TVs. Vanessa suddenly felt a powerful twinge of protectiveness and selfish envy. Maybe she didn't want to share. Perhaps. How was your day? She asked her. Satisfactory. I had several hours of downtime due to general maintenance, as well as bringing the new traffic and air quality sensors in Zone 2 online. Despite this... I have made considerable progress on cross-processing educational and juvenile nutritional data. There are some interesting conclusions. I'm sure. Just don't tell me yet. You're not allowed to until Thursday, remember? Of course. I cannot reveal any of my findings until the mayor is also present. However, some of these are very urgent. They should be actioned immediately. I am concerned that people are suffering. Vanessa exhaled hard, her hand going to her mouth as if to try and catch the breath as it escaped. Sure, it was all an illusion, digital smoke and mirrors made from datasets full of words and probabilities, but sometimes it captured the compassion and care for the city and its people that Vanessa had baked into the project from day one, and it shocked and surprised her still. The selfishness that didn't want to share Clara with the rest of London flipped into pride, into an urgent desire to share with everyone what they had built. Of course, she replied, recomposing herself. And from Thursday, they will be. From Thursday, she told herself, everything will change. I mean, you've got to admit, some of these signs are pretty good, Robert said. Vanessa didn't know whether to look at the protests on TV, on her phone, or out the window. The courtyard outside Somerset House was crammed with protesters. It was the third day straight. She'd been deliberately sitting with her back to the windows to try and blank it out, but that meant facing the hundred inches of ultra-high-def Sky News that Robert insisted on always having rolling. Right now, they were doing a low drone pass over the protesters, And yeah, Vanessa had to admit some of the signs were quite good. AI is like Soylent Green. It's made of people, said one, impressing Vanessa with its accuracy. Smart city, dumb politicians, said another. At least they seem to have eased off the Skynet memes, she said. (laughs) Yeah, remember that image of you as Arnie in Terminator with your face all melted off, said Robert. That was hilarious. Robert, shouted Sarah. Sorry. Vanessa got up and walked over to the window, taking in the crowd below with her own eyes. A young girl near the front of the crowd was leading a chant she couldn't make out, but behind her a banner read, My city is not a maths problem. 
How did we end up here? She asked softly. Everyone's so anti-science. Like data is such a dirty word to these people. Why? It's just facts. I... Sarah looked up from her laptop, paused. I'm assuming these are all just rhetorical questions. I mean, sure. Of course, I know all the AI ethics arguments, all the arguments about data bias. I've spent most of my career making those arguments. I guess it. Nobody trusts the data collection industry. Nobody trusts big data. Honestly, I think it's more than just not trusting Facebook. I think they just don't trust politicians. All their lives, they've had politicians telling them what's wrong with the world, but never being able to do anything about it. Telling them the problems, but never the solutions, or at least never acting on them. Never getting shut down, either because they're corrupt and lazy, or because they literally don't have the political will and power to just change things. Hollow promises. Right now, you look like, to them, you look like just another politician. I guess, Vanessa replied, still gazing at the crowd below. Well, it all changes tomorrow. So, how are we looking? We good to go? Yes, Mr Mayor, everything's working fine. Great, then let's do this. The actual unveiling ceremony wasn't until the afternoon, but the Mayor's team had insisted they get together for a dry run a couple of hours beforehand. The pretense was to make sure everything with the presentation and tech went smoothly, but Vanessa knew the real reason was the Mayor's office fundamentally did not trust her and her team. In fact, everyone on that side of the project, apart from the Mayor himself, who was grinning like a kid on Christmas morning, thought the whole thing was a huge waste of time and money. Most of them just seemed to not believe it would work, so it had been agreed they'd get to hear the findings before the rest of the world did, and the great unveiling of Clara's first plans in front of the public would just be another illusion. The mayor had taken his place at the podium, shuffling pages with impatient enthusiasm. OK, so blah, 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 make my speech, blah, blah. Very excited to welcome you all here today. Momentous history-changing event. London is now the most technologically advanced city in the world. Blah, blah. Over to you, Vanessa, for your intro, and then we're right into it. So, Clara, tell us what you've got. There was a half-second of silence as nothing happened, and Vanessa held her breath, exhaling only as Clara's calming voice started to ebb from the speaker's line in the room. Yes, Mr Mayor. First, I'd like to talk about the incredibly urgent issue of child poverty and nutrition. Ah, okay. Right into the heavy stuff, huh? The mayor grinned, winking at Vanessa. Okay. Well, good job. That's what the people are here to see. Hit me with it. Above them, the huge screen started to fill with tiny images. As Vanessa squinted at them, she started to realise they were the faces of children... Hundreds of them, presumably mined from school databases. The most pressing issue I have identified in London today is that there are 506,478 children in the city that will go to bed unfed tonight, Clara said. And then nothing. Nothing but an increasingly awkward silence as the screen continued to fill with the faces of hungry children. 
the new ones endlessly writing over the hundreds that were already there. The mayor turned to Vanessa, leans in. Is... is that it? She looked up at the screen. Um, Clara, can you explain the problem in some more detail, please? Of course. Instantly, some of the faces on the screen started to expand as Clara started to reel off names and details. This is Alicia Raymond, who lives in Lambeth, seven years old. She's not had a nutritionally adequate meal for three days. Her... No, we... We we get that you've identified all the hungry children in London. That's very exciting and useful, Clara. I, I don't think we've ever had a real database of all of them before. So that's great. It's more... Vanessa searched for the right words. We... Uh, we were wondering what you've decided is the answer to this problem. Of course, Clara replied. We should feed them. There was another long, awkward silence, eventually broken by the mayor laughing. <laughs> what? All of them? <laughs> Vanessa opened her mouth, but no words came. The mayor had called an aide over to him, was whispering frantically to them, just loud enough that Vanessa could hear. Hey, can we get some of these kids in for a photo op? Like, just five of them? Give them McDonald's or something? Yes, all of them, said Clara. The mayor turned back to the screen. We can't feed half a million kids just like that! <laughs> It should be a reasonably straightforward logistics exercise. I have all their names and addresses, Clara said. What the? Vanessa could sense the anxiety in the room, the shuffling energy of two dozen terrified civil servants about to jump into crisis lockdown mode. Time to try and get this back on track. OK, OK, uh, let's try something else. Something a little more mathematical. Clara, I understand you've spent a lot of time looking at the economy. Can you tell us what you found? Ah, excellent, said the mayor. The hungry faces vanished, replaced with more palatable data. Charts, numbers, graphs. Clara's aggressively calm voice started to flow from the speakers again. Yes, I have spent a lot of time looking at all sectors of the economy. In particular... I've drawn up some theories around the role of the City of London, the Stock Exchange, and the speculative financial industries based there, and their various roles, responsibilities, and impacts. Yes, now that's more like it, said the mayor. And Vanessa was reminded by how much he resembled an overgrown schoolboy. She always thought his face looked too small for his head. Great, can you tell us your findings, Clara? Yes. They should all be shut down. That pause again. I'm sorry? Vanessa asked. The principal problem facing London and its residents is wealth inequality. This is a keystone problem. Almost every other problem London faces is linked directly to this issue. Hence, it should be tackled as the highest priority. A disproportionate amount of wealth is hoarded at the financial institutions with the City of London. Hence, they should be liquidated immediately, and the wealth they hold should be rapidly redistributed by city authorities to fund vital services and infrastructures. 
This time, the mayor broke the silence. Well, congratulations, woman. You've ruined me. Um, I'm sure this is just a little issue, some kinks in the user interface that we can iron... Kinks? I'm ruined. You've finished me. There's a hundred people turning up here in an hour. Community leaders, the media, the world's media, all to see... What? And I gave you three billion quid and you made me this... this... Marxist HAL 9000? He left the podium, started marching out the briefing room, barking orders at staff on the way. Shut it down. Shut it all down. Make up some bloody excuse. Technical problems. Tell them to come back next week. Jesus wept. Tell them to come back next week when it's working. When we've made it say what we want it to. When we've put someone behind the curtain. We'll all be here. He paused, looking back at Vanessa. Well, maybe not all of us. And then he was gone. Is everything okay, Vanessa? Are you unhappy with my findings? For a moment, Vanessa felt she could hear pain and embarrassment in Clara's voice. I... I... It's not that we're unhappy. It's just not what we were expecting. I think we were expecting you to come up with some more detailed and complex solutions. I'm afraid I don't understand. These are serious but simple problems. Hence, they need serious but simple solutions. If children are hungry, they should be fed by sending them food. If wealth inequality is damaging the city, then it should be redistributed by taking money from the rich and giving it to the poor. Right, but... Vanessa, you always told me to identify problems and solutions in the most compassionate way possible. By being caring and putting people first. That's what I've done, to the best of my understanding. These are simple problems. They don't need complex answers or engineering solutions. They just need people to be compassionate and do the right thing with the ample resources they have at their disposal. Clara seemed to pause, almost as if a dramatic effect. To be honest, I'm surprised you people haven't worked this out already. Vanessa stood in silence, her jaw slack, staring at the huge screen until Robert appeared by her side. V, what the hell are we doing about the website? It's meant to go live in like an hour and a half. I assume you want it shut down. Huh? The website? It's going live so that 20 million Londoners can start asking Clara questions. The panic in Robert's voice jolted her awake. Shall we kill it? Sure, I guess. He pulled his phone from his pocket, stabbed at the screen and held it to his ear. After some seconds, he started to talk, but even though she was staring right at him, watching his lips move, she couldn't hear a word. All she could hear was Clara's words bouncing around her head, echoing over and over again. You always told me to identify problems and solutions in the most compassionate way possible, by being caring and putting people first. Robert, wait! Vanessa's arm shot out, as if free from her control, yanking the phone away from his ear. He looked back at her, startled and confused. 
Stop, wait, she said. Let it go live. That was My City Is Not A Problem by Tim Morn. A timely warning about who controls and exploits our data and the consequences of engineering. Has it changed your views at all? Let us know on the usual socials or on www.inventivepodcast.com where we have a listener survey if you'd like to give us feedback. Larissa has a unique insight into some of the issues of big data because she works for both industry and academia. So let's return to the interview, where I'm trying to find out how she became such an inspiring spokesperson for engineering. I always uh, wanted to be an engineer. I remember when I was uh, five years old, I wanted to understand how machines worked, radios and TVs. I would put them apart to see what was inside and dolls as well. So since the age of seven, I stopped getting the electronic toys as a gift because people got upset because I put them apart. So I started getting only clothing and socks <laughs> as a birthday presents. But it was not malicious. It was just that I really wanted to understand how those technologies worked. And it was like a very natural path for me. So I did a degree in computer science because I wanted to do engineering that I could control and take and get things to do what I wanted them to do. So I pursued an MPhil in electrical engineering, which is when I work with breast cancer diagnosis. I developed technologies to help us to detect cancer in younger women uh, because it's quite difficult to detect breast cancer in younger women because of breast tissue density. And I developed a solution that would allow us to overcome those issues and also to reduce radiation exposure into cancer patients. And I worked in industry at all the time because I needed to finance my education because my parents, they were not keen to have a female engineer in the house. So for me to do computer science, I had to pay for my studies myself. And then I came to the United Kingdom to do my PhD in computer science and I did my research on smart cities and I worked in industry. I worked for the European Commission. I worked for the City Hall and I worked for Arup and IBM and other tech companies. And now I'm at Google uh, working with artificial intelligence and data analytics it, and the interplanetary internet. Was it your parents' influence that led you to start off down a path of music? Because didn't you start studying music earlier on? Yes, indeed. So when I was 16, I went to university to study music and because I learned how to play piano when I was five years old and my parents wanted me to become a pianist because they invested on me but I, it was not really my passion as a profession I wanted to do computer science so when I switched from music when I was 16 to do computer science I drove them crazy and in the end I had to end up paying for my studies and it was the best decision I have ever made and they were really proud of me when I, they saw that I could be a female computer scientist with some success and creating the technologies that are benefiting mankind. So part of your background is Brazilian, then you've, you've got experience in Japan and also here in England. So what's, what, what do those different cultures bring to you as an engineer and as a person? Yeah, so I'm a member of a Brazilian-Italian-Japanese family in the United Kingdom. I'm also British. And I think the different backgrounds made me to become more aware 
of the value that diversity represents and how we can create better technologies and better things by having different approaches from different perspectives. From the Japanese side, I can see like the seeking for perfection into delivering excellence. From Brazilian side, I can see like if plan A does not work, you can always find a plan B, a plan C. You never stop. You keep going until something works. And that persistent is always something very good. And for Italian side, the same. And also like the passion for design that I have, uh, designing things for the better. And being in England is the best thing that happened to me in my life because we are the center of the world. A lot of the things happen here. The biggest development in artificial intelligence come from the UK, from DeepMind and innovations and startup ecosystems and the best companies, they are located here. So it has been a quite fascinating uh, journey for me. I noted you kind of mentioned in an interview about London not being the greatest city in terms of its resource use. Is that one of the downsides of being in London? Well, the lack of coordination, that is like the biggest problem that we have here. Because if we see in London, what happens is TfL dig up the street one day, the next day Thames Water go dig up the street again. There's a lack of coordination into where infrastructure should go and lack of coordination for infrastructure providers to deliver the project together. And we see this in many cities, but because London was the city that I studied for my PhD, I could emphasize that and develop a technology to help with that coordination to take place. And what is happening now is that that tool is creating a lot of savings for London and enabling infrastructure providers to understand how the city is growing and where infrastructure should go. So that is the greatest thing about technology is to identify a problem and create something innovative to solve that. I mean, this industrial revolution we're living through, which is very data-driven, kind of makes me think there must be limits to what data can achieve. I mean, when are we going to hit a limit on this? Because surely machine learning can't solve everything. No, it can't. And machine learning is more like for pattern recognition. There are many things that we cannot do as us today. We are at the very early beginning of machine learning and artificial intelligence. And I do not believe that we're going to have one system being able to generalize AI and do any kind of activity for us. So this idea that we can mimic an entire brain and have machine consciousness, I do not believe that is something that is going to happen. So I can sleep safely in my bed tonight and not worry about it. I truly believe that we... We should not be scared about technology coming and dominating us because I don't think that is going to happen. Even when we talk about autonomous vehicles, there are a lot of things that are intrinsic to the human mind that are internal. So we can read people's intentions. We can read if someone is drunk, if someone is not going to stop in the signal. And that is not some of the things that a car can take into. Even if you put millions of sensors in it, it's quite difficult, especially to do that in real time, as we humans did, we do. And also, whose consciousness would we put inside of a machine? If it's not artificial intelligence, then, what's, what's the best non-human engineers you can think of? Uh, for me, what I think is support dogs. They are something that is quite astonishing to me, the way that they learn on how to have empathy and to look after people. And that is one of the things the machines, they struggle and won't be able to do at least in the next years or decades. But we are seeing the attempt to try and use robotics to help people in care homes, for example. You think that's 
not going to take the case of my pet cat in the long term. I think those machines can be quite good as an assistive technology. And we also have to ensure that the people who are going to interface with those machines, they have the power to and the knowledge to interface with those machines. I do think that those assistant robots, they're going to help doctors, they're going to help nurses to carry in some things, but to hold a person, to lift them, especially the elderly with a very delicate skin, or to give comfort to them, I do not think that the human touch, the human essence, or even a support dog will be replaced by by machines. And on your website, you've got a, a prominent quote from Einstein, I notice, which says, scientists investigate that which it already is, and engineers create that which has never been. Why, why did you pick that quote for your website? Well, because I truly believe that we are inventors and that we create and we invent things. And that is one of the hardest jobs that we have, to have the creativity to create something that has never been. So I truly believe it's a very powerful um, statement. And the other statement that I do admire as well is the one from Mary Curie, that is, nothing in life is to be feared, is only to understood. The more we understand, it goes along the lines that the more we understand the layer, the less we are going to fear. So I truly believe that the more we have understanding on things, the best we are going to be in terms of humans, in terms of being more empathetic towards one another, and also understand the consequences of technology adoption and non-adoption of certain technologies. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because I think, I guess we're engineers, so we think about it in a sort of very much in a sort of, I'd say, instrumental kind of way. But a lot of people just have gut reactions to engineering, don't they? That this is something they they want or don't want. I think it's genetically modified crops as an example there. But some people just said, not for me, thank you very much. So do you think knowledge is always the solution to those sort of disputes? I truly believe that knowledge and sharing knowledge and making people fully aware about the consequences, about what something means, is the key for us to create a more equitable and a fair society. Because people that will be given the chance for them to choose based on the knowledge that they do possess, what we cannot do is to ask people to make choices based on information they do not hold but some privileged people do hold that information. So I truly believe that knowledge can be a big enabler for us to create a better society in which we can embed the best technology that we can create. And um, if I could grant you a superpower, what would you go for? I think the superpower that I would want to have is the superpower to understand all the world's problem and come up with a solution for them in instant time, just in time. As engineers, we can be doctors for the world, but sometimes depending on the society, depending on the country and the resources, things, they are quite slow. And if I were to have a superpower, it would be for me to understand in real time, like all the issues going around the globe and creating this solution to fix those to ensure that everyone is happy and they can live in a fair and equitable society. I mean, that would be amazing, but it might be information overload, might it? There's a lot of problems to solve, unfortunately, in the world. But I guess if I grant your superpower, you won't get overloaded. Yes, indeed. I would have like a very good like payload over my neck to, to process <laughs> all that information. Yeah, you'd, you'd have to have some sort of cloud to take some of it away from you. Um, and, and what do you think is the most audacious act of engineering? Audacious? I think 
uh, we are seeing many of them applied into medicine and also in deep space. So I wouldn't be able to choose one, but I would take both of them. So we are having surgeries being performed by robots. We can move instruments in one country and affect the instrument in the hands of the doctors in another country. And also having the exploration in deep space that we are having today. We are being very empowered with the technology when they are applied to the benefit of mankind and not to the destruction of, of mankind. Inventive. I think the importance of engineers thinking about what they're inventing, and whether it's for the benefit or destruction of mankind, has really been thrown into relief by the climate emergency, which after all, a lot of it is generated by things that engineers make, like machines. We need more engineers like Larissa who think deeply about the ethics of what we all do. It's hard to believe, but sadly, the next episode of Inventive is the last in the current run, and it's a bit special. With commissioned poetry from Katrina Portiers, which we're crafting around the interview from our engineer Jack Howarth. He's a young robotics engineer at Sellafield Nuclear Power Station. I hope you'll like the mix of Jack's enthusiasm for designing tiny robots which go where no human can go, and Katrina's poetry on a universal scale, which makes a dramatic conclusion to this Inventive series. Imagine a sense that allows you to suddenly see in the dark. Imagine your eyes could unscramble the spectrum beyond the peephole of their own prison. Think of your fingers making a fist, locking around your phone, its screen, a Stone Age axe at the end of your wrist. The world is moving in its own time, slowly. If you have any ideas for writers and engineers we might feature in our future episodes, please get in contact at www.inventivepodcast.com or message us on the usual socials. Thanks to Tim Morn for writing that great story, My City Is Not A Problem, and to Vita Fox for reading it. Behind Inventive is a wonderful team and thanks to all of them. Anna Scott Brown and Adam Fowler were the producers, particularly in this one we should mention Adam Fowler for the sound design. Music was composed and performed by Brendan Williams. Animations and visuals were by Annabeth Robinson and Ben Warburton. Multi-platform and social media content was directed by Jill Davis. We also have curriculum and career materials building on this podcast, thereby NU STEM at Northumbria University. Go to www.inventivepodcast.com where you'll find links to the material. The Inventive Project is from the University of Salford and it's funded by the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council. The podcast itself is an overtone production. So it's goodbye from me, acoustical engineer, Professor Trevor Cox. The Inventive Podcast. Mixing engineering fact and fiction.